0: Welcome to Pure Happiness Coffee. Pure Happiness Coffee is a poem, an artwork, and a community dedicated to becoming better stewards of our world's favorite beverage. Each episode of Pure Happiness is a short glimpse into one individual's coffee journey, a journey that finally connects us all. Today on Pure Happiness Coffee, I'm returning to a post about a matter of concrete a fantastic roaster out of Rotterdam, located in the historic Van Nell factory, a premier example of constructivist architecture and what became known as the international style. A matter of concrete is the project of 2019 London coffee masters champ, Rob Clarice, who I had the great fortune of meeting last year around New York coffee festival at an event co-organized with Geo of drip coffee makers. That event was an off-site competition, a brewing competition using the Orea and a bunch of wonderful coffee from A Matter of Concrete. It was a a really great time and so cool to see some of the highest level brewers on the planet just hanging out, uh, drinking some beers, having some pizza, and, and throwing it down. So hi Rob and NGO as well and wishing you well. A Matter of Concrete roasts extraordinary coffee from all over the world. Today, I'm revisiting a coffee I picked up at Rosalyn in London in 2022 from Balinese farmer Ai Wayan Puram's S795 and Cobra, which placed in the top 20 in Indonesia's 2021 Cup of Excellence. Episode 12, A Matter of Concrete and Ai Wayan Puram's Indonesia Natural. Returning to this writing and these coffees is so strange, so interesting, so complex, so fascinating. Here I have it, a written record of this coffee, of picking it up, of my joy in drinking it. And yet, I will never have this coffee again. I do remember drinking this coffee two years ago. I remember how good it was, and I remember how surprised I was that it was from Indonesia. Conceivably, I could drink Purim's coffee again, and I could even drink it from a matter of concrete. But as anyone in coffee knows, every coffee is different, because every season is different. The weather is different, the climate is changing, the processing conditions might have shifted. All manner of contingencies mean that we should, whenever we encounter a coffee we really love, Take that experience for what it is, an ephemeral encounter with beauty. While I don't intend for this episode to have quite the same historical legs as the last episode in part on Ethiopia's land system did, it is worth mentioning briefly that indeed it was the Dutch who in the 1600s first took coffee from Yemen and out from Yemen to Indonesia, to Java, and eventually to Bali, where this coffee is from. Thus, beginning coffee spread from out of Africa and Arabia and across the world. Considering coffee's enormous global reach today, it's an astonishing fact that this spread only began less than 400 years ago, making coffee coextensive with all the enormous shifts in the last 400 years. Colonialism, globalization, international markets, the slave trade, the rise of democracy and leftist politics, post-coloniality, and now telecommunications, the internet, and beyond. Indeed, it is one of the most important stories modernity has to offer. And it continues to this day. On this episode, I want to reflect for a moment on an important early idea here at Pure Happiness Coffee. That idea I call non-representational coffee writing. The following is what I would call an extended piece of non-representational coffee writing. It doesn't aim to discuss the flavor of the coffee I drank, a flavor that is falling further and further away from me every moment. Rather, it aims to write around that drinking experience, to write around the coffee, to write into history, into memory, into reality, just as reality escapes us. I don't mean at all to denigrate what I will come to call representational coffee writing, or put more succinctly, flavor notes. You know, that thing that we all do when we go, well, that tastes like molasses and lemon and stewed Laffy Taffy. Indeed, I'm a huge advocate for creative ways to talk about taste, but there is a limit to that representational ability. A limit, I want to suggest, that is in part determined by the economic structures and systems that determine what a high-value coffee is and what a not-so-high-value coffee is. In my writing about a matter of concrete, I play on the dual meaning of the word concrete. It is both a building material and a word that means something like material, like a concrete thing is exactly what it is when we want to come down from the world of abstractions, we say, please give me something concrete. So you could say that in a roundabout way, this concrete language that I'm giving you now, which is not meant to represent the coffee, but rather directly speak about it, that you could say the following is my way of talking about the beautiful work done at A Matter of Concrete out there in the Van Nell factory, a way of speaking that isn't always so direct but a way that mimics the sweeping facade of the Van Nel factory itself. That factory and its beautiful glass-and-steel-curtained walls opening to the light and to the water and to the outside was part of an international movement in architecture that, like Bauhaus before it and the concrete brutalism to follow, was concerned with stripping ornamentation from architecture. Not to leave it naked, but to leave behind beautiful, functional, recombinant forms that could easily be built around the world in a variety of economic conditions. The big, repeatable forms used by modernism have their basis in both beauty and socialist commitments to improving the lives of workers, of proliferating a form of architecture made from cheap materials like concrete that could circle around the world, and it did. And also, It was born out of a dream of industrialization that might be a way toward greater social equity. And at its best, I think, at the highest levels of coffee, like those achieved by a matter of concrete, a part of that avant-garde spirit, one committed to excellence for all, lives on. While our global economic system might not allow that dream to proliferate very widely, I do believe that these radical roasters bring to light the exceptional beauty of coffees from around the world in a way that may cause us to rethink just what coffee has been and can be. When I began Pure Happiness, I did so primarily as a writing project, and I intended to bring my poetic and philosophical education to coffee because, like it has the world Coffee had infected me with its luxurious aroma and compelling history. Now, the specialty coffee world prides itself on the extraordinary flavors super high-level coffee has to offer its imbiber, and I'm certainly drawn to the kaleidoscopic beauty of an amazing cup of coffee, like this one I'm trying to remember from a matter of concrete, from Indonesia, from Purim trying to remember it as it flits away into non-existence, and as it returns in strange vicissitudes, like a ghost on the periphery of vision. But I will admit that I'm somewhat suspicious of the way that we talk about taste, and maybe the way we talk about memory as well. In specialty, I think taste is discussed in two main ways. On the one hand, you have taste discussed in relationship to score. For example, this coffee was around an 87.8. And on the other hand, you tend to have taste discussed relative to notes. For example, the notes repeated below, lavender, rosehip, orange. The first kind of tasting, the scoring one, I'll call for now informational. The second kind, the metaphorical one, where we taste things that aren't there or taste like things, I'll call it representational. That is, there's not actually lavender or rosehip or orange in the coffee. Most discussion of coffee is determined by these two forms of taste, the informational and the representational. Now, we can say a lot about why this is, but put extremely reductively, the standards of informational taste, that is, the standards for scoring, were invented in the 20th century As a way to grade coffee first in order to determine that it would be suitable for commodity trading then for other metrical forms of analysis part of this had to do with the rise of telecommunications commodity markets developed alongside more rapid communication communication that in the 20th century became much faster than the slow movement of actual physical goods this meant that deals on coffee and other products could be made much, much faster than parties on either end of that transaction were able to judge the qualities of the materials being traded. Think about it. This was actually unique in world history. Every communication prior to the development of telecommunications required a literal human-to-human contact, or a letter, or a smoke signal, or, well, A pigeon carrying a note which was admittedly pretty fast and the telecommunications revolution was identical with what I would call the information revolution indeed telecommunications phones the internet etc only work because of the invention of information theory by Claude Shannon in the early 20th century that is a mathematical measurement of the amount of information necessary to send a desired signal. The standards of tasting that score coffee are really a kind of information theoretical protocol with the primary purpose of ensuring that a given coffee meets a low bar for tradability. The signal being that it will be able to be traded and the score being that threshold that it has to cross, the amount of information necessary to be used in that market. Now, In specialty coffee today, that utility has been reversed. Today, scores still serve that function, but they also now serve a different one. They're also indicators of high value. That is, they tell auctioneers and buyers what might end up being a very high-priced coffee. And when that is known, as we've seen recently, that price can end up very high indeed. A little more to the point, What this has done is make the difference between, say, an 84-point and an 86-point coffee huge, especially for a grower, many of whom are operating on currencies and in values that are much lower than the buyers who are distributing the coffees around the world. Indeed, the difference between an 84-point and an 86-point coffee can make or break a grower's year. And that space of difference isn't always as precise as we'd like. Indeed, there's a lot going on in coffee today, specifically meant to raise a given coffee, just a couple of points, because it is so lucrative to do so. However, not every grower has access to the kinds of methods that are being used to raise those scores. Things like post-processing methods and washing and processing yourself at all. This is a place we start seeing a lot of what I would call structural economic problems in coffee. For example, imagine there's a green coffee buyer from the United States who purchases coffee in Bolivia and sells it back in the U.S. And then there is the rural Bolivian farmer growing coffee and selling cherry to that buyer. Now, that rural farmer has been living in a disadvantaged economic situation for likely decades, a situation of asymmetrical power relations and asymmetrical currency values that makes it such that it would be very difficult for that farmer to ever accumulate the amount of wealth necessary to, let's say, build their own wet mill or processing facility or even gain the education necessary to learn about the markets that their coffee is being sold into. and. From a business perspective it's actually incentivized for that buyer of coffee cherry not to educate that farmer not to help them build the infrastructure necessary to process their own coffee wash it etc etc in part because so much today depends on that space between the 84 point coffee and the 86-point coffee. So if a buyer can buy cherry that would be, if processed very regularly, yield about an 84-point score, but you could make a lot more money if you could buy it and raise it two points, well, certainly you're not gonna teach that farmer how to raise that two points themselves, unless we are living in an idealistic world where these business people are are altruists rather if you're continuing to make a profit then you were incentivized structurally i mean and i mean this like beyond the kind of vindictive way we like to think about maybe how business people are i mean this just structurally that it makes sense in business for this buyer not to give that grower access to the means of producing their own coffee and that That is a very important difference in coffee, and especially in specialty coffee today. So we need to understand that this relationship is one that is fraught uh, with a structural condition that incentivizes the buyer of cherry to not adequately help those that he buys from. Okay, so I wanna leave it there with the informational side of tasting, because there's also what I have called the representational side of tasting. The representational side of tasting, which, okay, admittedly I like, you know, those little notes that flourish, like little poems on the base of bags of beans that prime us toward an exciting flavor experience, like little poems of faith and communication. They're almost like imminent coffee haiku a genuine cultural language act meant to convey little bits of beauty to coffee drinkers everywhere. I even once had a friend, Josh, at Lucien Coffee, give me a bag once with a, a proprietary coffee haiku he wrote for me on it. Thank you, Josh. Lavender, rosehip, orange, to refer back to the amok. My non-representational coffee writing, by contrast, is anything but succinct. It is meandering, complex, and non-teleological. It's always falling victim to detour. It never quite arrives where it's headed. It always finds in the taste of something a whole invisible world not present between me and my tongue, between the liquid and my body. That's because, while taste might be one of our most cherished personal experiences, a lot of what we taste is occurring somewhere very far away, and I strongly believe that the experience of taste and the one that we have as a personal experience is valid, I also believe that it's constructed in relation to forces of history, power, economy, and culture, and things that happen really far away from us. And that goes for identifying this or that note as much as for saying this or that coffee is good. Now. I don't mean that my form of writing is a solution to the problem of taste, but rather I do view it as a playful exploration of the outside of taste that taste is nevertheless determined to buy. This non-representational coffee writing is about stimulating us to a kind of thinking about taste and thinking about our situation of coffee, a kind of thinking that ...isn't possible on the bottom of the bag, maybe. This writing, this thinking, this exploration of memory and history, coffee and reality, culture and economics, this is a writing meant to be as poetically captivating as it is informational. And it's my dream that by meandering together in these wilds of language and thought, while accompanied by the world's most excellent coffee, that we will discover just how to make this all better, to make this all more beautiful, and to make this all more equitable. April 20th, 2022. A striking and gorgeous Indonesian natural from a matter of concrete out of the Van Nel factory in Rotterdam. Like the famous grain silos of Buffalo, the city from which I now write, The VN Factory is an early example of Concrete's utopian vision of form and function's unity. I absolutely love Amok's cylindrical packaging that revolves coffee into an unexpected but useful shape, a vessel that nestled with me on the plane from London to NYC where I watched a strange show dealing with Roland Barthes' mythologies. seen grinning widely as he discusses the pure happiness of his morning cup of coffee, the intellectual's cup of coffee, was famous for unfolding the myriad mythologies of contemporary life, refusing the surface of language as simple representation, and aiming for a structuralist interrogation of all social and material reality. In Writing Degree Zero, his most succinct discourse on writing and style Barthes finds in the poetic word, what he calls a superliterary magic and power that shines forth, whole, because the poetic word can never be untrue. It shines with an infinite freedom and prepares to radiate towards innumerable uncertain and possible connections. Here, words, and hence writing, take on a zero degree style with the explicit poetic purpose of creating activity that leaps beyond the merely referential function of language. The poetic word, therefore, like the silo or the new objective factory, is a concrete actuality. A matter of concrete, you might say. That kind of poetic word is the one Pure Happiness coffee hopes to keep tracing on this electronic material medium it seems to appear on these screens, but that is in fact a gathered node of magic and power, traversing time, space, and all the forces of nature. Such a word has an infernal and interminable relation to sense experience, as this Balinese coffee from farmer I Wayan Parum makes its way into my body, first as aroma, then as becoming. I slip into an intoxicated poetic mood overcome by concrete particulars. 1300 MASL, S795 and Cobra, natural, 300 grams, 22, three, 2022, lavender, rosehip, orange, roasted for filter, specialty coffee, 009, 1. These moments of pure happiness among the violent topography of history's manifestation in us offer a simultaneous translatio, enduring and more powerful than trauma, because it is this consistent inconsistency on which our subsistence depends. An aleatoric point of the unpresentable became ever the more invisible, the more we drove, the more that became less as in demonstration of Zeno's paradox, where the forms of our imagination occasionally feel eternal, immobile, fixed, and yet, at any moment. Thank you for listening.